on this episode of In The Rack Podcast. I'm kind of way past that. Like, if I think that you still need that, then I'm going to recommend that for you. I don't care if Dr. Smith says that you can't, you know what I mean? Or you're good or you should be discharged. Like, we, our golden rule is here is we never discharge patients. Patients, it's like going to the dentist, man. Like, you should always be checking up with your dentist, right? So, like, you know. What, what you got? In the Rack Podcast, where we provide you with a practical framework for breaking PRs in all facets of health and wellness. We are just a couple of bros giving you the simple hows in a world of complex wants. No filters, no scripts, no rules, just straight talk. Talk to them. Now, let's get into the rack with your hosts, Dr. Chad and Dr. Nick. All right, Chad. Thanks so much for joining us this uh, this morning. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about what your profession is, your background, where you're working, what you're doing? Yeah, so my name's Chad Burnham. I'm a physical therapist in the state of Massachusetts, and I've been practicing for just about 12 years or so. Um, I started my own practice about six years ago, and we are we started as a hybrid uh, practice, meaning we were taking some insurance, some we weren't. Uh, we have then s- since moved to completely out of network with insurance. Um, so we do more physical therapy, performance training, and we kind of blend the two. So um, it's it's been our passion. We can treat you know patients and clients any way we like because we do performance training. We do nutrition coaching. Um, we've got plans to do hopefully a performance center in the next year and a half that we've been kind of like we're planning out now. So we'll kind of see how that goes. Um, that's in the pipeline right now. But um, that's the vision for Proform. Yeah. Can I just ask what led you to go to that model? Just curious. Yeah. So I worked in an insurance based, actually I worked for two great places before I actually opened up my own spot and they were both family run, um, small outpatient orthopedic clinics. Um, but this, it wasn't the clinics. It was the system that was, that led me to kind of the model that we're in now. And, uh, the system, unfortunately is, is failing us. You know, we, we talk about it all the time. Like it's failing the providers. It's all, it's failing the clients and the patients. You know, we can't be able to provide the service that we want under time constraints, reimbursement constraints. So what do we have to do? We have to see more patients to make ends meet. Uh, we have to work more hours. The burnout is high. Um, and you just, you, you honestly can't treat people the way that you want to treat people, whether it's the type of technique that you're using, that's not going to get reimbursed by insurance or whether it's the time that you have to work with these people. So I said, well, you know, we can do it better. So let's do it better. Let's, let's not complain about how much the system sucks, even though we can do that, but let's change the system and do it, do it our way. So that's what kind of like led me to what we're doing now. So I love it. I love that. If you're going to bet on anybody, bet on yourself, right? Damn right. Then you only have to blame yourself. (laughs) That is awesome. (laughs) Yeah. So you know, we're having you on for care of the non-surgical shoulder. So let's just talk a little bit about the anatomy. We know that the shoulder is much more than the glenohumeral joint. We got four joints that make it up. We got the sternoclavicular joint, acromioclavicular joint, obviously the glenohumeral joint, but then we got that big scapular thoracic joint, which we know isn't a true joint. We have multiple ligaments that make it up. We have three of the glenohumeral ligaments, a coracoacromial ligament, a coracoacromial a coracoclavicular ligament and a transverse humeral ligament. And then we got 17 muscles, which I'll let the listeners, I won't bore them and list them all, but 17 muscles that attach to the scapula and make up the shoulder. A lot going on there that we need to know. Yeah, pretty wild. I mean, I, I'm not as well with the anatomy as you guys are. I've been out of school for a while, but what I will say is that, um, like you said, we look at the shoulder as a lot of people are like, oh, it's the glenohumeral joint. It's just like, it's a ball and socket. Yeah, that might be true at that one joint, but you just mentioned so many more joints there. And you just said that 17 muscles attached to the scap, yet nobody talks about the scapula. It's kind of wild. It is kind of wild. I mean, we're going to get into that later. I know. (laughs) uh, But yeah, I mean, we haven't even started talking about the spine, the lumbo uh, pelvic uh, complex. I mean, we could go down a huge rabbit hole and we'll see where the conversation uh, takes us. But when someone's coming in, Chad, to the clinic to see you, what are some of the things that they're coming in complaining of shoulder pain? What are the quote unquote diagnosis that are coming through the door? 
Oh man, I would say we get anything from rotator cuff tears. We've got uh, shoulder impingement, quote unquote. Uh, we get um, we get AC joint separations every now and then. You know, with some of the sports that we have. Um, oh, tendonitis. That's a that's a popular one. Um, we don't really see too many shoulder replacements. We see them every now and then, but I would say those are the main ones. Bice- biceps tendonitis you know, that, yeah. that kind of stuff, you know, um, I don't know. Am I missing any? <laughs> those are the common ones that I could think no. of. I mean, those are maybe glenohumeral arthritis too. That's just kind of, Oh yeah. Arthritis. Yeah. I yeah. forgot that one. Right. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, I'm curious when you have patients walking through the door and they're seeing you conservatively, are your patients showing up with an MRI or an X-ray, like telling you, Hey, Chad, my doctor said I had a rotator cuff tear or it's really arthritic and every patient happens to be the worst, uh, the worst amount of arthritis or the most amount of arthritis right in their shoulder. Uh, are you, you seeing, are, are you getting that kind of information from your patients? Are they coming with imaging and saying that to you? Oh yeah, man. It's so funny that you just said that. Cause I've said, we have our own podcast too. And I talk about that all the time. And it's, um, we, we've got patients that come in like, man, my doctor said I have the worst shoulder that he's ever seen. How am I even moving this thing? It's yeah. like, that's so funny because I just saw the same <laughs> like I just saw another patient with the same doctor as you that said the same thing like last yeah. week. Yeah. Damn. So it's, um, it's, I get it. It's like a marketing ploy. It's probably a little bit of buy-in, you know, they're, they're surgeons. We can't forget that. Right. That's how they make their money. That's their bread and butter. Right. And it's, it's some of it is that, but some of it is also not understanding, you know, the conservative side of, of treating shoulders. Right. So um, yeah, we see that all the time. Patients come in with MRIs. They, they come in with the discs sometimes. It's like, nah, I don't really have to see that. We can look at the, you know, the sheet, you know, the, the report. That's fine. Um, but you know, what we've been getting a lot of lately is, is conservative shoulder care that wasn't, um, wasn't performed great, right? So we get a lot of like post-op rotator cuff repairs that come and see us now that's four or five months out. And now we're dealing with like adhesive capsulitis on top of a rotator cuff tear that never like, you know, got what it needed. Right. So I feel like we've been, we've been doing a lot of, you know, it's almost like, you know, how like you get a, um, a cover up for tattoos. I feel like, dude, we're doing like cover ups for like all these like shoulders and knees and backs that just didn't get the care that they needed in the, in the right place, you know? So, um, I think, a podcast like this is, is great for awareness of letting people know that they need to be an advocate for their own health as well and knowing what they're getting. So, um, but yeah, we do see a lot of that for sure. And and they, they love for us to read them. I mean, we don't really read them, but we're happy to look at the image. We're happy to look at the report, but you know, somebody was more qualified to read that. And I know we're going to be talking about this later, but you know, does it, does it really matter? Right. Um, question mark, right? But we'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll dive into that later. Yeah. And something I would add to that too, Chad, is it just, you know, cause you're in a cash-based model and Ryan and I are in an insurance-based model, but I think I've been guilty of this in the past. I'll be the first to admit that. I'm sure Ryan's been guilty of it. I don't know if he'll agree with me here, but when you're in the insurance-based model and you start to see some of those patients that are post-surgical and they start moving well, it's almost like you think I got to discharge them because they're doing so well. When maybe months down the line, you're like, I really didn't address the spine. I really didn't address scapular stabilization. And I think I come across that now with people I work with, people I I talk to questions because I I was definitely that person. And it's a delicate thing when you're dealing with insurance because, right, we might only get authorized X amount of visits. So I I would add to that. I don't know if you'd agree, Ryan. Yeah, no, I'd certainly agree. And I think kind of going off of both of what you sort of talked, Chad, about just the awareness of what's going on and and Steve talking about how we are just treating this diagnosis that comes in. And, and when we see that, we get so caught up on, you know, the referrals of shoulder impingement. And next thing you know, we think we got to go down a rabbit hole. We're treating the shoulder impingement. And when they come in and they don't have a painful arc, life is good. Let's discharge them. And, uh, you know, that's where I, I get pretty passionate myself about we're just treating impairments. And, and uh, the only way to really find out are the impairments are to watch people move. And that's, you know, that's what we talked about before we came on air is we're, we're the movement specialists and, and uh, you're not going to see it unless you're having people move. That's right. Like you got somebody that comes in, they're like, yeah, I have pain when I throw. Great. Let's not watch you throw. Let's just treat your shoulder. You know what I mean? So it's like, 
or I have pain when I squat. Okay. What do you think I'm going to do? I'm going to watch you squat. Right. So like, it's just, it's interesting how we've developed this, this type of care where it's just like so robotic. We just get stuck in these routines and I've done that. I've been guilty of that. You know, when we were in the insurance based model, like you get stuck in these like, you know, dead end rabbit holes, right. Where you're just like, yeah, I'll just, I'll just treat this guy the same way I treated that guy. And that's just what it's going to be. Cause it works. Right. Maybe, maybe it does for the 20% of the people that you see. Right. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's not the best type of care. It's not optimal for that patient. Right. You know? And the problem is they don't know any better. They're trusting you as the provider well, until they don't get better. Right. You're correct there. One, one challenge I kind of often will see is if it's, if the patient's kind of essentially uh, under the a surgeon's primary care and we're sort of just rehabbing post-operatively, or even if it's conservatively, they seem to kind of take the, the surgeon's word as when the surgeon says, Hey, you know, I don't need to see you anymore. I'm, I'm, I'm good. They kind of just, they put physical therapy in that same bundle. And so then they'll come in right after seeing doc, like, yeah, I'm, I'm good. Doctor says I look good. I'm, I'm happy. But, uh, you know, there's, there's, probably more layers to it that we never even got to delve into. And it's so hard changing that, that patient's behavioral pattern and thought process. And, and that, that's, that can be a big challenge too. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's our job, right. As, as the providers and it's, and it's, it's on us to set that plan of care and standard in the beginning. Right. So when they know they see the doctor and the doctor's like, yeah, you're doing great. You know, at least, they know that you're just like, yeah, I know, but I, I still have to do this and I have to do that. Or I'm not quite there because my PT like says that, all right, this is the next phase or this is the next thing that we have to do. Right. Like yeah. I think when they just take the word of the doctor and there are so many PTs, OTs, you know, professionals out there that are just like, yep, I don't want to step on anybody's toes. It's like, I'm kind of way past that. Like if I think that you still need that, then I'm going to recommend that for you. I don't care if Dr. Smith says that you can't. You know what I mean? Or you're good or you should be discharged. Like we, our golden rule is here is we never discharge patients. Patients, it's like going to the dentist, man. Like you should always be checking up with your dentist, right? So like, yeah. you know, it's not a big deal when people get their teeth cleaned every six months. Why shouldn't we be getting our, you know, wellness screening every six months or every other month? Like we do continuity care here. Like it's, you know, we have month to month patients that come in, get, get checked up. Like that's just the way it should be. Like, you know, and it's yeah. just, you know, it's got to change for sure. Yeah, it's got to change. We'll definitely get into that later, yeah. but let's talk about, let's transition into the clinical exam. What, let's say, you know, patients coming into you saying, Hey, I got right shoulder pain. What does your clinical examination look like, Chad? What are you, what are you doing? Yeah, well, I think in the first part and in, in the thing that I really harp on is like, you got to just sit down there and you got to listen to the patient, right? Like you have to actually sit and listen to what they're telling you because the history can give you a lot of information. Um, so the history is obviously number one, right? If like, you're not going to sit there and actually listen to what they're saying, then you could be wasting both of your times. And, and I've had situations where I actually just had this shoulder patient not too long ago. And sorry, I'm going to veer off here for a second. Fine. She, um, she, she had a rotator cuff repair. She was seen by another PT for like three visits and she was like, I'm not getting any better. I feel worse. And she came to me and it's post-op. It's like three weeks post-op. Like there's not really a lot that you can do at that point. There's some stuff, right? But you know, you're under protocol. Like you got to wait for things to heal. So I literally asked her what the other therapist did. And it was almost, I don't want to say it was verbatim similar to what I did, but I didn't really do much different, you know, post-op, right? But I sat down, had a conversation with her, made her feel comfortable. And it's like amazing how much better she felt. Like when she was getting the information she needed, when she was getting the input she needed, you know, I mean, again, we could jump down the pain science rabbit hole, but like it's, it really is important to get a good subjective history. People want to be heard. You know what I mean? I've had patients, I've not even touched patients and they feel better leaving sometimes. You know what I mean? Because all they want to do is sit there and talk. It's like, hey, if you want to sit here and talk for an hour, I'm cool with that. You know what I mean? As long as you feel better after this. So Subjective history is number one, that, that you got to get. Um, and then I'll go into just my general screen. And, and I know we're going to talk about, you know, part of the screening process a little bit later, but um, I will basically go through like a manual range of motion, do a, like some quick strength tests just to see how everything looks. Um, and then I'll get them doing some movements that I want them to do. And, you know, I don't, I don't know how much your viewers know about the, uh, the 3D maps, but I'll put people through 3D maps, which is through the Gray Institute. Um, and just like to see how the shoulder is moving as, as a whole with the rest of the body. 
Um, and then I might even just throw in some, some FMR. FMR is that functional manual reaction where basically we're trying to guide some of that movement. Does it make the pain better? Does it make it worse? You know, and then just kind of just seeing how they're moving throughout all those, all those processes. Uh, don't really do too much on the special tests. I'm going to be honest, unless I'm like, uh, not sure if, if there's something else going on there, but even still, um, I don't really dive too deep into that. Um, and then once I get all the, the stuff that I need from the movement screen, then, then I apply it, you know? So whether it's a mobility restriction, whether it's a stability st restriction, whether it's both, who knows, you know? So it's, it's, um, it's not like that every time, but I would say that that's pretty consistent with me, you know, in terms of going down the list. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And for our viewers that don't know, Chad is also a great Institute fellow. Uh, 3D Maps is a movement screen, a performance analysis that you, they use. If you YouTube it, you can find some movements on there. They have a lot of free content out there. So that's more of a global thing, Chad. And I love that you spoke to that because I harp on the show. Our listeners probably were glad I didn't do the last episode. They had Cassie and Shelly to listen to rather than Ryan and I, because I'm like, the whole body. <laughs> but do you start, you know, as, as we're trained in school, right? We're taught one joint at a time, isolated, a, a muscle isolated at a time. Do you start with that classic Syriax screen or assessment where you're checking capsule, you're checking ligamentous, then you're doing your manual muscle test and you might do it in standing and supine? Or does that matter to you? Uh, I would say yes and no. Like, I feel like I can get a pretty good handle on that just from the range of motion that I'm doing on the patient. Um, but I like to see how the movement is, is looking as a whole. Um, I mean, you know, as well as I know that um, capsular tightness has changed quite a bit in how we view that over the years, right? Is it anterior? Is it posterior? It's just capsular tightness. You know what I mean? Where is that capsule? Why is that capsular tightness happening? Is it a soft tissue restriction is, or is it actual capsular tightness? So um, that stuff you can see pretty, pretty well when you're putting them through a global movement screen, because maybe it's not the shoulder that's restricting during some of that movement. Maybe it's, maybe it's the hip. I don't know, you know, and because we can't just go right to just jam in that shoulder. Maybe it's the scapula thoracic joint. Maybe it's the shoulder blade. I don't know. Maybe it's the thoracic spine. So there's so many things. That's the shoulders, a tough, tough thing to talk about, right? Because there's so many different variables that can happen there. Um, and, and just like the rest of the body, but the shoulder in particular, because when you think about it, the shoulder, especially when you're an overhead athlete, I mean, you've got so many things going on there from the hand all the way down to the foot. So it's, when, when you're dealing from distal to proximal, like there's so much stuff that happens in between. Um, but I, I don't, I don't go through the Syriax principles. Like you said, I definitely don't. Um, I, I bring them through more of a global movement screen after I've, ad I've identified that they can tolerate it. Right. Like if somebody comes in, they can't just like, they can't even move their shoulder, probably not going to throw them into 3d maps. You know what I mean? Um, but I might modify it so I can see how everything else is working. Right. Like I still put people through 3D maps if they come in post like status post uh, rotator cuff repair, you know, but maybe I do it and I'm looking more at the scapulothoracic joint instead of the glenohumeral joint range of motion, right? Because there are things that we can still be doing in the beginning to prepare them for when they're ready for the next phase, right? So could you, would you feel confident enough kind of talking through what some of those movements are for the listeners who are out there who don't know what 3D maps is? And then if you feel okay, kind of just quickly describing that, do you think you could give us like an example of where you're saying, this is what I'm looking at. This is an example of what I would see if it wasn't the glenohumeral joint, if it was something else, if you could just provide us an example. I think that'd be great yeah. for you know, just to get a walkthrough of that. Yeah. I, I actually just had this patient two weeks ago. He's a, a high school pitcher and he's had a history of, uh, he had a stress fracture in his elbow, uh, like two years ago. And then just recently started having some anterior shoulder pain. Um, so I immediately think, all right, he's a pitcher. Let's look at some of his footage. Right. I'm like, dude, you're 17 years old. You probably got stuff on your phone. Right. So he did. So we looked at it. Um, and you could totally see that he had very, very minimal mobility in his thoracic spine. So if you can imagine, and this is before I even brought him through 3d maps. So, um, you can imagine that not having a lot of mobility, especially thoracic extension as a pitcher you can imagine how much more stress that shoulder has to go under to perform that motion of, you know, flexion and external rotation that that shoulder has to go through. And if that thoracic spine can't help, then what has to happen, right? The shoulder has to work harder to get that motion. Um, and you could totally see it in the video. 
And then when I brought him through the 3D maps, it was completely evident. He had like no thoracic mobility whatsoever, um, which limits his scapulothoracic mobility already. So it's like a chain reaction, right? So it's starting from the thoracic spine, working up into the shoulder blade, down into the shoulder and into the elbow. And his dad was like, well, do you think this could have caused the stress fracture in the elbow? And I said, absolutely, it could have. Because, I mean, if he's got no mobility uh, or a loss of mobility, he's favoring stability somewhere else. And he's probably favoring the stability in the shoulder, no doubt. You know, so um, a lot of a lot of people try to, you know, go right for the shoulder and say, oh, it's a rotator cuff weakness. Right. But like, number one, is it number one, a rotator cuff weakness or is the rotator cuff already overactive because it's trying to overcompensate for a lack of mobility somewhere else? You know, um, so in his situation, he had just had a bunch of like, you know, the whole protocol, IR, ER, overhead, IR, ER, there you Oh, dude, dude. And, and no, no, no reduction of symptoms. If anything, it, 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 it made him worse, you know, um, because his shoulder was already strong enough. He just didn't have the control and the mobility of the thoracic spine to be able to control that, that distal motion. Right. So, um, that was an example that I just had recently, but you know, bringing him through that 3d maps would, would show me clearly enough that he didn't have the thoracic extension. Right. So where do you think I'm going to spend most of my time? I spent most of my time on his thoracic mobility. And his scapulothoracic joint. I didn't even touch his shoulder that day. Yeah. Um, I guess you could if you wanted to control symptoms and put out the fire a little bit, but um, that's not the core. The core um, part of his problem. I mean, the core part of his problem is coming from thoracic spine, scapulothoracic joints. So. And in 3D yeah, maps, you can add anything you want, Chad. So for our listeners who don't know, in 3D yeah. maps, what you do is you have a person in standing, feet shoulder width apart, and what you would do is let's say you have them perform shoulder flexion bilaterally and then step forward with one leg. So if I was stepping forward with my right leg, both arms going ahead, I've almost have them pause and I would look for how the shoulder is moving. And, and I, am I getting some good extension from the upper thoracic spine in, into the lumbar? Am I getting good hip extension? Um, you might look for like the front of the pelvis, ASIS extending over the toes. Um, and then just going backwards, stepping, keeping that left foot planted, taking both arms, reaching down past your toes um, lunging backwards with that right, right leg. Now I'm looking at flexion, seeing what happens at the hip, uh, the ankle. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to do the, the, get the most amount of information in the least amount of time. Right. right. And then we also check, um, and the transverse plane, same thing, both feet, shoulder width apart, arms in front, uh, at 90 degrees. I'll have you rotate to the right, using your right foot to rotate with you, keeping your left foot planted, then coming across around your left foot in front, um, what we would call an opposite rotational lunge. I hope that makes sense. And then we have the frontal plane where we're lunging out to the side and our legs are loading the medial chain. Um, is there a better way I could explain that? No, that sounds great. Because when you think about it, like we were saying, looking at the whole body, right? Like this kid's a pitcher. We're not just looking at the shoulder. Yes, we're looking at his thoracic spine, but we're also looking at his hips too. You know, we're looking at his you know, some tailor joint range of motion, right? So like, I mean, if you want to get real nitpicky with it, but I think hitting the big rocks in this kid's situation, thoracic spine, let's look at these hips and see if that's causing restriction. So maybe it's, it's forcing him to cause him to have to overutilize that shoulder during the pitch, who knows, yeah. right? But during those global movement screens, you can see all that, you know, if you're doing enough repetitions and you're, you're experienced enough to look at it, then you can see it clear as day. It's pretty wild. Question for both of you here. So um, you know, it's um, based off the, the patient there, it sounds like it's more kind of like an acute on chronic type of situation. Is that yes. correct? Yep. So does, does anything change as far as, uh, the evaluation or examination, if it's more of like an acute injury to the shoulder, well, let's, let's use the same picture. Let's say, you know, for a fact, three days ago, he felt a pop in his shoulder. He comes in, sees you. What, what changes, uh, if anything with, with that, ex uh, examination? I would say the examination still stays the same. The only thing that would change maybe is managing symptoms of pain, you know? So maybe I would have to get a little bit more on the shoulder to reduce his symptoms, but I still want to see the global movement. What's causing that for sure. Yeah. yeah. And I, I would agree with Chad. Like I'm always looking at as much global movement as I can. I'll, I do start though. I still use those Syriax principles. Like I'll look at my classic range of motion, my, my capsule, I'll take that stuff. And then I'll take them into the global, see it. And, and honestly, sometimes it just depends for me. Like sometimes I'll start global and then I'll be like, oh yeah, I need to investigate that more. You know, you, you can tell because 
when you measure so many shoulders right in a day or you see it, you know what what's normal, what what looks like, uh, what things should look like. So that's how I'll start. I think that's how it would change for me, Ryan. Yeah, no, it's yeah, and that's that's kind of like what I said. Like even in the um, when you guys were talking about the um, what I do clinically, you know, my evaluation, it's I always usually check the isolated range of motion of that joint in the upper joint, you know, um, and lower joint, just to see if they can tolerate the three D maps itself. You know, if they can still tolerate it, then I'll put it through. I'll, I'll put them through it for sure. Yeah, and yeah. get on YouTube, check out three D maps, listeners. Um, let's talk about, so we got an idea of your clinical exam. You know, you, you just kind of assess the range of motion. You do some manual muscle testing. You'll do more of a glo uh, global movement analysis of the patient, see how other joints are impacting the possible impairment. You mentioned special tests. Hmm. You said you don't do them anymore. Right. Are they that special? Why? Oh man. I don't think, I mean, you're asking me this question, obviously, because you don't think they're special either. I, I definitely don't think they're special. Um, We're I don't think there's, yeah, <laughs> I don't think there's much validity to them, to be quite honest. Um, I, I think, well, let's just take, let's just take the classic special test for impingement, right? What are the classic special tests for impingement? Near, Hawkins, Kennedy, Hawkins, Nears, yeah. right? Like, dude, I mean, it just seems like that's not even a functional position for the shoulder anyways. Like, especially if you're an overhead thrower, like why am I going to put you in a Hawkins Kennedy test? First of all. Um, and then we go and say, ah, oh, you're tight. So let's put, let's put you in a sleeper stretch, which is Hawkins Kennedy on a table. Yeah. So it's like, it just makes no sense. You know, why would we even put those people in a position like that? And quite honestly, like I really don't even love the term impingement anymore. You know, it's, it's just, it's overutilized. I don't even think people even really know what it means. Um, I mean, a lot of the research even out there is just saying that, a lot of the, like, for example, like in the shoulders, subacromial impingement syndrome, like sub, does it, is that really where it's coming from? I, I don't know. Like a lot of times they'll say now that it's, it's not even the extrinsic forces that are causing pain in the shoulder. It's intrinsic forces in the tendon. So could it be that that tendon's overutilized, overstressed because of a lack of mobility somewhere else, right? doesn't necessarily have to be that the um, subacromial space is quote unquote smaller and it's causing irritation on the tendon. Um, so I just think it's a bad term overall, you know? And I think if somebody has bad mechanics already and you're going to just jam their shoulder up, yeah, of course it's going to be painful. Or if they're already symptomatic, yeah, of course it's going to suck. That tendon's already pissed off and now you're putting it in a compromised position. <laughs> so yeah, I don't no, think it's a lot, great. A lot of great yeah. points there, right? I always think yeah. just under over lying kind of question is what is it even telling you? Is it telling right. you anything important? And uh, I myself, my own practice, I avoid using words such as impingement at, at all costs if I can. One, it's just pure speculation. You know, we don't, like you kind of said, we can't really rule in. We can sort of rule out maybe if there's not pain, but uh, people, patients cling to, can cling to those hot words and uh, it's it can only be damaging by just throwing out terms like that. Totally. I can actually have no. one little story. I can remember, you know, I was my second rotation in PT school. And one of the things that you're supposed to do is fill out kind of this form for your CI per the university's request. You know, what are, what are like three big things you want to take away from your rotation? And number one, I put special tests. I want to be a master of special <laughs> tests. You learn it all, you know, through the textbook in class, one by one, right down the line. It's like, man, I want to be a master diagnostic guy and I can... I gave the sheet to my CI and he looked up at me. He's like, buddy, I, I don't know any of them. I don't do it. And from that, from that point more, more forward, I just always remember him saying that and kind of instantly adopted this idea of, okay, yeah, special tests. Maybe they're not that special. Yeah. And like you said, I mean, that was a great point. Like, all right, I've identified you have impingement from this special test. Now, what am I going to do with it? Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, great. That told me zero things. Zero things. You have impingement. Okay, now what am I going to do? I'm just going to rub ultrasound on your shoulder and then just stretch you and then you're good to go? Like, what, there's no global screen there to determine what's actually causing that irritation. So um, it's just not useful at all. Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll give you a, my hot take right now that might just get me pulled over the coals through the listeners and everything. But, you know, on social media, it is amazing about, you know, all these different therapists chiropractors who are creating content right now. And a lot of it is really just challenging and list and, and listing research of things that we used to believe, right? Like things, impingement, 
things like scapulohumeral rhythm, the way the scapula sits. And one thing that just kind of blew my mind is I was at a sports med conference in Phoenix in February, and this physician got up and talked about, you know, what he looks at the scapula, the way the resting, all, all this, all this stuff, right? And I forget she's the head PT, I think, of the Dodgers structure and function. Tad, you know her name? I forget her name. No. Oh my gosh. It's, it's, but she gets up there and talks about, hey, caring for the shoulder. And she basically lists all this literature. And if somebody's really curious, they can email me. I'll, I'll find it that she lists it because I have the presentation um, notes. But she basically just says, yeah, there, there's nothing to validate all that, that information, like what's normal, what, what we believe is normal, the way it sits, how that's really impacting function or pain. And basically just kind of trashes this physician and then says, <laughs> this is what we want to address when we look at the shoulder. So that kind of leads me into our, our, our next thing, you know, we talk about, okay, our special test, not so special. So is that affecting what you're providing for intervention then? Cause you're saying, Hey, I might find something at the thoracic spine. You're looking at it from more of a regional interdependence lens. Like what are you looking at? That's determining whether you're going after the joint, you're going after the thoracic spine, you're going after the, the hip is, is it what you're seeing in your movement screen doing a little bit of everything? Yeah, I, that's a good question. And I think it, it's all obviously all going to depend on the provider, right? Like we could all see the same things, but some people might want to work, you know, down below. Some people might want to work higher. Um, I like to go for the bigger rocks. I like to keep it simple, right? So like, for example, like that picture that I had the other day, he, he's got thoracic stuff going on. He's got scapula thoracic stuff going on. He's got some hip tightness going on. Where do I focus my time? Right? So his hip mobility wasn't awful, right? I think it's something that we could address in the future, but the big rock for him was that thoracic spine. So I, I think it's one of those things where you have to determine, all right, I got to focus my, my time on this one or this, these two sections, right? And then give him things to do for the, for those regions, right? And then focus on the other things later. So I think it's, if you're trying to treat literally the whole entire body, not only are you going to probably not get the result that you're looking for, but it's going to be super confusing for the patient. So you got to keep it simple. So for him, I'm like, dude, I just want you to work on your thoracic mobility and, you know, work on some of these motions that I give you, which obviously still incorporates the hip, but it's not just emphasized on the hip, right? So it's like, I think giving an emphasis somewhere, but the focus needs to be somewhere else, you know? And I, I think that's usually where I, that's usually where I go you know, with, with everything that I do, I like to give some people a little bit, but not too much. Um, otherwise it's just, it's overload. It's too much, too much stimulus for the body could make it worse. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, does it change for you? Like, you know, I think the common things, right. That are given for the shoulder. Let's talk about the common interventions that are given for most shoulders. <laughs> it's probably a pec stretch, probably some type of capsule yep. stretch, whether it's a sleeper, a cross body stretch, probably, probably shoulder pulleys. <laughs> Shoulder, pulleys, shoulder pulleys. Yeah. Um, you're probably giving a TheraBand and giving some shoulder yes. row, some any yep. any type of retraction. Yep. IRER most likely. Yeah, IRER inside. Yep. Yeah. Uh, yep. uh, arm isometrics if you're, you know, really, really that that um, early in the phases of, of post-op most likely. Um, yeah. Cane, cane, active assist, range of motion stuff. I see that stuff all the time. Um, yeah, we try not to have people on the table at really much, you know, if I'm doing some passive range of motion or if I'm doing some FMR locally, then I probably will. But, um, yeah, we're, we're not doing a whole bunch of stuff on the table. I like to get them doing things that, that e equals what they're going to be doing or is authentic to what they're going to be doing outside of, of the clinic. You know, do you have a good example of like an elderly patient? Cause I can see people being like, well, yeah, Chad, you're talking about a picture. You're not talking about my middle-aged or my elderly grandma who's coming into the, shouldn't you have her on the table? I mean, could you give us an example of how, how would you work with someone elder shoulder dysfunction in the clinic? Yeah. So like, for example, all right, let's say, all right. So let's say you have an older person coming in. She's probably got a degenerative joint, right? I'm sure she's got arthritis like we all do, right? She's got some pain there. She probably doesn't move much, which means everything's probably glued down pretty much. Um, so let's talk about the scapula and the importance of the scapula and shoulder mobility, right? Since we're talking about shoulders. So she's coming, she's got shoulder pain. Um, and I've identified that she's, she's probably pretty kyphotic, right? But she's got no shoulder mobility or shoulder uh, scapula mobility. Do you think like I could probably spend a little bit of time 
on the scapulothoracic joint, but how do I make that functional for her, right? So if I have her standing, we know that whichever direction the hip goes, the scapula follows, right? So let's make this functional and let's have her do like a simulated step with maybe like a, a reach across, or maybe even she's doing like a, we call it a sling matrix where she's kind of holding the elbow and then kind of moving forward and backwards. But as she takes the step, so she's creating a global movement instead of saying, all right, I want you to pull on these pulleys for 20 minutes, or you're going to take this cane, you're going to go overhead because now she's on her back or she's sitting and she's not being functional, right? Because you know, let's work on balance while we're here. Let's not waste everybody's time. So um, you can get her doing more functional movements, but functional movements that are influencing the shoulder blade or the scapula at the same time. Yeah, no, what, what I think is great about that to kind of add on to your question, Steve, and your answer, Chad, is I took a course with uh, Jeff Moore as a physical therapist. And, and his uh, argument, I guess you could say, is that the elderly person um, needs to be loaded more than, let's say, an athlete. In the sense that the athlete or the young adult, their, their body's already more resilient. And it's all about improving resilience. And the only way to be doing that is to, to apply load, to apply increased resistance, repetitions, things like that. And so I think, uh, yeah, kind of where we're getting at is, is leading to the question of, yeah, do you need to do something different with the elderly person? Ultimately, you're, you're working towards the same thing, just a few different steps to get there. Yeah, I've gotten into plenty of arguments with people over the years, whether it's colleagues, non-colleagues, even my wife's a therapist about, you know, what we should do. And I think you have to get comfortable being uncomfortable, right? Because it's probably totally. out of your wheelbox. But I think that's the only way we're going to continue to evolve and continue to improve. And for those of you that don't understand what Chad was saying is if he has someone stepping and reaching, he said the right, we, we talked about the right shoulder. If the right shoulder, it's going to follow the right hip. So if the right hip, if you have somebody take a step forward with your right foot, that's going to create left rotation of the pelvis. And if they're reaching simultaneously, we're going to get left rotation of that thoracic spine, which is going to facilitate left rib rotation. And that's going to facilitate horizontal adduction of the scapula. Damn, dude. See how many people could do that? Everybody could break it. How many people, everybody should be able to do it, but not everybody can do that. That was good. Thank you. I mean, I'll I'll give you another example of, uh, we have an older gentleman who's, um, He's, he's forward. Gravity's definitely taken a toll on this guy. Super cool guy. Used to play basketball back in the day. Loves to just like hang out and chit chat and talk, but he loves to, he loves to move. Right. So we, we, uh, happen to have a basketball hoop in our clinic. So we actually have him literally, he loads and, and explodes, right? So he will go into a flex position, come back up, reach and shoot the basket to the, um, to the hoop. Right. Cause it's like, it's now we're loading and exploding thoracic extension. So we're like, let's just, you can't leave until you make three. You know what I mean? So he could be there for 10 minutes. He could be there for five minutes. So it's like, it's pretty sweet because it's an easy exercise. Like it's, it's playful, right? But at the same time, we're influencing those motions that we want to get out of this guy, which is thoracic extension. You know, we got to get this guy standing straighter. So um, yeah, you just got to be creative, but functional at the same time. Yeah. And I love the, the load to explode, uh, that's kind of taken from Mulligan. If anybody out there's taken like a Mulligan course, you know, like for the shoulder, we might look at doing a lot of posterior capsule mobilizations, but Mulligan was smart enough to say, well, Hey, rather than beating that joint up, usually, right. We see a soft tissue, a capsule restriction, whatever's causing a capsule restriction. And we say, we got to go one way. Well, he's saying, why don't we just clear anteriorly and load that, take that load to explode into the posterior capsule right. mobilization. So I, I love that idea, that concept. Um, so in, interventions, you know, I, I, I love everything you're saying you're doing. I'm probably a little bit different. Maybe Ryan is, I don't know if you want to speak to this, Ryan, but I probably do start them on the table. I'm probably doing some type of soft tissue or joint some manual technique to kind of calm, give that nervous system some input, calm them down. And then I start a little isolated. Then I look to integrate it more later in my session. Yeah, no, no, I'd agree. I always try to decrease the level of irritability, whether it be the joint or soft tissue or even the nervous system. You know, a couple of times, yeah, if you have, in my experience, you jump the gun too quick, you know, you can, you're kind of uh, fighting an uphill battle then. But, but yeah, just, well, that's part of your, your examination then. You're trying to figure out how, how irritable is that patient. And, and based off that response is dictating if I'm starting more, you know, 
supine passive treatment versus going straight to the gym. Yeah. I mean, we definitely do a lot of manual here too, as well. I won't, I won't say that we don't, we're not like AFS, like, you know, only. Right. So it's um, like, for example, that picture, I would just focus my soft tissue work on the area that I'm trying to uh, improve mobility or function. Right. So yeah. in that kid's case, like I said, I didn't touch his shoulder, but I spent a ton of time on his thoracic spine. So yeah. um, we do like cupping, dry needling, you know, all the soft tissue mobilization and all that other stuff. So um, like you said, kind of decrease the irritability and, and get that joint like a little bit, you know, more mobile, but also kind of, you know, maybe, maybe calm down the nervous system a little bit, right. Before we, before we harp on it a little bit, you know? Sure. Yeah. I got a question for you. So you mentioned you, you uh, had that patient, you went to the basketball hoop. Yeah. Perfect exercise intervention to be doing. What do you have to say to the listeners that don't have that type of equipment at their facility? And don't tell them, tell them to refer to you either. Speak to, speak to what Ryan said, but then after that, if you could transition into what types of things do you want to see in clinics and what are you giving your patients, right? Rather than those common exercises that we give. So I'm sure you're doing some different stuff. Yeah. So we, um, well, to answer your question, Ryan, um, you don't need a basketball hoop, right? But like, if you have a med ball, if it's a really light med ball, you can do some med ball scoops, like, you know, down and up, you know, you can do slams, right? If you're trying to load the other direction. So we do those too. So um, I think it's, as long as you're influencing the motion, I think it's, it's appropriate, right? Um, we do a lot of stuff near the wall, whether we're trying to, you know, influence extension by reaching med ball overhead, or maybe it's rotational, you know? So, um, I love the load to explode though. That is my favorite. So if we can get a little resistance in there and, and, and do some med ball overhead tosses, that's okay too. And everybody loves to throw a med ball. So, you know, if you can't do it inside, do it outside, you know? Um, but in terms of, of your question, Steve, like what, what are we giving patients in terms of like, what are we giving them for exercises? You mean, is it, was that your question? Yeah. We, we know that the T bands are coming out and you're keeping the elbow flexed side. You're doing IRER, you're doing some type of row, you're doing some type of horizontal abduction. Maybe you're doing some diagonals, but I'm just curious to first some ideas for us. Yeah. So, I mean, just because we do, we do that stuff doesn't mean we do like performance training stuff too. Like we're still doing like RDLs and lunges and overhead you know, presses and all that. Right. But we just mix it up a little bit. We just put them in different directions. So we do lunges in different directions. We do RDLs with different reaches. We do, you know, overhead presses with different reaches, right? We do, we love kettlebells. We do kettlebell swings, you know, um, we, we have a landmine, we do landmine swings. So, um, we do, uh, we do use a, an app called true coach, which is because, you're not going to find those exercises in a basic home exercise program that we use. Right. So we have to make our own. So that was the toughest part about this whole transition was how do we create, um, you know, continuity, but how do we also create people to be compliant with their exercises at home? You know, some of this stuff is pretty confusing, right? So, um, we actually have to make our own videos and then we upload them to this online platform. And then from there, we, uh, we send them over to them you know, with, with an email as well, that pretty much summarizes, you know, what we found for that day, you know, what, what our plan is going forward and all that. So it's, uh, we try to make it, we try to make it different, right? Like we, we try to improve the overall customer experience, right? Like, even though like they're a patient, they're still a customer, right? So we want them to understand because how many people do you talk to that don't understand what's going on with their shoulder? Like if, or their knee or their back, like they just got told that they got this, or maybe they got told five different things and they don't know who to believe. Right. So, but if you break it down and, and have them understand it, then they can, then they can see what they're striving toward. I like that. How do you determine, you know, I think one thing that I see as a struggle with therapists, I went through it for years. And I think I just got comfortable in the last couple of years. I feel there's, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to pump my own tire. There's certainly things that I can do way better. I would much have other people see some of my colleagues for other things, but I feel like exercise progression is a challenging thing for whether you're, you're new or maybe you're limited in equipment. Can you just talk about how you're determining to progress somebody with you know, shoulder exercises, obviously you're probably starting with restoring the range of motion. So you're probably starting with maybe a capsule stretch, a muscle stretch, multiple of them. Maybe you got some 
retraction stuff. Maybe you're giving them some resisted thoracic um, extension or rotation, but how do you make that progression? Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a tough question, right? Cause there's like so many different variables and so many different ways that you can progress somebody. But I would say that mobility is always a good start for me. I love to go from mobility, um, create stability, especially if you have a joint that was not so mobile before, and now it's more mobile. Now we have to teach that joint how to control that new mobility that you've gained. Right. So I think that's, that's the progression that I go into. And then obviously I, we love to load people here. So we just load them up. So whether it's resistance with bands, whether it's resistance with dumbbells, um, uh, but that's, that's pretty much how we go about doing it. And we're always going in all planes. So it's, it's not ever, Oh, we start in sagittal and then we go frontal and then transverse. It's you're, you're, if you're not ready for some, that, that could be a progression. Maybe we do progress you to a rotational transverse plane. Like I got a guy that just had a stroke and he's got this left-sided neglect and it's been, uh, it's the progression for him is getting him to rotate, um, to that left side, but he's not ready for it. He's got sagittal plane down. We just started getting into frontal plane. He's comfortable there, but he's just not quite comfortable with the transverse plane. So that's going to be next on his list. Right? So everybody's got, you know, different levels of progression, you know, whether it is a mobility, whether it's a stability progression, whether, you know, mobility and stability are good, but maybe it's just a strength progression, you know? So it's, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it varies based on the person for sure. How are you assessing stability? I feel like that's a huge component. We probably haven't talked about. Yeah. So stability could be, um, when I think of stability, I think of control of mobility, right? So I'm not going to say, all right, hold this side plank or hold this plank or hold this, you know, dumbbell over your head, right? Like it's, it's how, how do we control that motion? Right? So like if we're, you know, for example, looking at the shoulder and you've now gained this nice scapulothoracic mobility in the shoulder and we're doing some overhead stuff, how does that motion look? Right? Is it, you know, is it smooth? Is it choppy? If it is choppy, then maybe we have to create some stability before we kind of get up there. Right. Or maybe we do get up there and we give you a weight and we hold while we're moving in different positions. Um, so that's basically how we go about assessing the stability in terms of what they can actually handle. Um, but I would say it's more on the control of, of the mobility that they've, they've, they either have or control of the mobility that they've just gained by working with you. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty good. So almost yeah, it's like, not like a test that you could do and just say, Oh, great. You're a four out of five on your stability today. That's great. <laughs> that means like, yeah. I wish it was that easy. Yeah. Positive, negative. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cause I mean, to me that the manual muscle testing, yes, it can give us some information, but my four might be different than Ryan's four, your four you know, percent. won't be different. Thousand but you percent. know, I, I like that. Cause I have a patient right now. I like that you mentioned that it was smooth or it could be choppy, you know, you, you you're looking for that quality and it doesn't have to be complicated, but I have a gentleman right now where I'm kind of trying to trick his nervous system a little bit where I'm trying to fix, you know, move his body on a fixed arm to get different position, get the scapula, the spine in different positions to give him some stability because he really struggles when he just tries to use his arms. So we're trying to trick it a little bit now. Right. Yeah. I'll use the approach often where, you know, if you have someone just doing Glenal humeral abduction and let's say they have a painful arc you see a little bit of a shrug what i'll do then is i'll go right into some stability work whether it be closed chain or uh just like an isometric hold of manual perturbations and then and then retest the classic test retest if if by getting the, the scapular stabilizers or cuff warmed up and the painful arc improves um there's definitely telling you there's a component of a you know poor dynamic stability in that shoulder so my question for you, Ryan, I'm going to challenge you on this one. How do you know it's a stability of the shoulder or if it's a lack of mobility somewhere else? Like, and this is, so it, in, in this situation that you just talked about, one of my quote unquote special tests, which I think are pretty special, um, <laughs> is <laughs> I actually create, and, and you know what this is, Steve, it's, it's an fMR of the shoulder of the scapula with that motion, right? So maybe we don't have a lot of scapulothoracic mobility there as we're doing abduction of the shoulder, right? Because if they're not working together or one's moving faster than the other, right, Steve? So like if the, if the glenohumeral joint's moving faster than the scapulothoracic joint, then of course we're going to get a painful arc, right? But if we can somehow normalize that, that rhythm and improve or speed up the scapulothoracic joint to match the glenohumeral joint, 
try that next time you have a patient like that and see if it reduces their symptoms. That's one of my tests. And, and what I'll do is I'll go in there and I'll say, all right, how does it feel now? All right, it actually feels a little bit better. That guides me into thinking, oh, maybe we have a scapulothoracic mobility issue, not so much a stability issue. Now, after you improve the mobility in that scapulothoracic joint, then you're probably going to deal with some stability issues because now you've gained this new mobility and we don't know how to control it because we've never had it or we haven't had it in a while, right? So that's that's my interpretation there, but different school of thought, but they both work, right? So no, no, I think I completely agree. Yeah. I'll even look at that myself. I just try to I try to really practice uh, not putting too many cooks in the kitchen at once. Yes. You, know, you test something and then right away you do the intervention, you retest it. And yes. uh, it's kind of a simple guide of if they got better, well, we're on to something. If not, um, keep looking elsewhere. And then I to kind of build on how do I know if the, you know, if it is something like that. Well, if let's say we take that same example, I get the cuff warmed up, painful arcs better, give them a couple ex home exercises for that. Well, if there's no carryover of symptoms, Again, so now I'm starting to question, okay, maybe there is more to that. Let's dive a little deeper. Sometimes you can, you know, luck out with it, something being superficial like that, but absolutely. Sure. That, it's layers of the onion sometimes. Yes. And that's how you go about that is, is kind of different and ultimately yep. looking for the same thing though. That's yeah, right. for those, and for those of you that don't uh, know or are getting lost with the FMR, it's functional manual reaction. We're using a hands-on technique. So if you know your scapular assistance tests, it's basically... You know, as your patient reaches your arm overhead, your hands are on the scapula trying to facilitate upward rotation. And you're messing with the speeds, you're messing with the resistance and seeing if that helps your patient. And as Chad said, right. then you know you have a scapular thoracic issue. Could we just talk about, maybe either of you could speak to this, but do you guys have some go-tos that you guys like to do for some hands-on, whether it's on the table or standing? I'm guessing, Chad, it's for you. It sounds like it's more of that helping the hands-on scapular motion you want to see, but anything you guys do on the table, um, any hands-on techniques that you'd recommend the listeners, maybe YouTube or try to utilize. Yeah, no, I, I first off, kind of like you said, hands-on is much proprioceptive input that you can uh, give the patient, the better. Um, I also do a lot of feedback, whether it be visual feedback, uh, verbal feedback, tactile cueing, um, uh, that's kind of a good place to start as far as specific interventions, uh, getting them, yeah, sideline, supine, standing and working through assisting some of those motions and, and seeing, does it make symptoms, do symptoms improve, worsen or stay the same? I don't know about yeah. specific. I, I don't know if you have any chat. I would agree with that. I do. I definitely do some of that as well. Um, I do some PNF patterns as well and the PNF can be coupled with some of that functional movement. So um, hands-on and, and giving that manual resistance so that you can feel the resistance throughout the full range. Cause some pockets of that range might be weak. Some might be strong. Right. And if we're getting a little weakness here, maybe we want to concentrate just in that one little section. Right. Um, so that's, that's stuff that I'll throw in there too, as well. What about you, Steve, anything else? Uh, you know, I, I agree with everything you guys are saying. I, I think usually, like I've said earlier, I usually start locally because I, I feel like Patients kind of expect that hands-on from us a little bit. And then I yeah. like to just, I like to integrate the whole body, you know, as much as I can, because as, as you said, Chad, I think with, as being an OT, my practice act is a little bit more robust. It's very, I mean, it's just very welcoming of what we can do, but I think sometimes people get a little territorial. And to me, I think like you said earlier, you gave that example of having some uh, elderly woman step forward and reach across the same time. And we know that that she's probably doing that in her garage. She's probably reaching for a glass out of the cupboard like yep. that you know, or something, you know, what we're doing that we're giving. Um, I think to th that is very, very functional. So that's how I'll, I'll do it. I'll start with some hands on, whether it's soft tissue, maybe it's a little bit of joint work. And then I like to get things moving. And obviously I let the patient's symptoms kind of guide me. You know, a lot of what you're seeing now, at least me, you're seeing this group I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of people on social media right now challenging kind of this quote unquote older school of thought or things that we used to think were very true with a lot of evidence. And now it seems like, is it more of a sensitivity issue, nervous system issue where we just have to start with a light load, give some input in the system and then progress it, you know, more to more of a functional thing where maybe we're starting with a isometric against the door frame. We're going into a band. Now we're working different planes. Maybe we're 
holding a kettlebell in 90 degrees of flexion and we're moving the trunk to get more of the cuff stuff there, loading the system and a I don't know if you guys would agree with that. That seems to be kind of a hot thing right now with these these young clinicians out in the Instagram world. Yeah, um, I think I think social media is like a blessing and a curse. I think um, yeah. <clears throat> I think it's one of those things where uh, you need to take everything with a grain of salt. I think it's it's a good thing in the way that you said, Steve. I think we're challenging the status quo, right? I think we're challenging certain things that we've been believing for the last 20, 30 years. Um, and I think that's a good thing. But I also think there's a lot of idiots out there that do a lot of dumb stuff, right? Like it's, yeah. come on guys, like this is this is not how we treat, this is not how this works. Um, and they're just doing it for recognition. I love the awareness part. You know, you got people out there that will badmouth anything just to get the attention. So um, I think it's, again, on the provider side, I think it's also like you have to be an advocate for yourself and for your patients and find out like, what's right and what's not right for them and not just take it from this guy because he's got a million followers on Instagram. You know what I mean? That doesn't make him credible at all. You know, just because he's got a blue check check mark doesn't make him credible. So it's, it's one of those things where you just, I think you just got to use your own decision-making and, and, you know, and go from there. But I don't know. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I, I've had battles with, with Instagram and, and Facebook for a while. So it's, <laughs> it's just one of those things where it's just like, you get so many people that hit you up and it's, it's usually the new grads or yeah. the kids that are still in school that like to challenge what you're doing. It's like, bro, you haven't even been out of school yet. Don't even talk to me right now. You know what I mean? So it's like, why don't you finish and graduate, pass your boards and then we'll talk. So it's like when they haven't even treated a real patient yet, but because so-and-so says this works. Why aren't you doing it this way? It's like, mm, okay, sure. So um, it's just one of those things. Just, it is what it is, you know, but I think in the awareness side, I think it's a good thing, you know, um, as long as we understand what we're being aware of. <laughs> so yeah. I have two questions left before I get into our takeaways and we wrap up with you. All right. So first I'll ask, we've touched a lot on my staff here knows that when I share a patient with them, or if I am lucky enough to do some in services where I get to have some fruitful conversation with our staff here at the clinic, I'll always talk about the thoracic spine. I jam it down their throat. They're probably sick of hearing about it. <laughs> why, what would you say to somebody who's just a little confused out here? Like, why do I need to look at the thoracic spine? What would you say, Chad, why does someone need to look at the thoracic spine? Like dealing with a shoulder, you're saying? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I would say always starting, for me sometimes, it always helps to start from proximal to go to distal. And thoracic spine is, is about as proximal as you can get. And a lot of influence from proximal, like for example, when we talk about like proximal acceleration, right? Like there are certain things that guide distal motion, right? Or proximal stability, right? Distal mobility and vice versa, right? So um, I think that if you are missing the big rock of the thoracic spine for the shoulder, um, because of that one thing that we talked about, especially that scapulothoracic joint, even though it's not a quote unquote real joint, it's a functional joint, it's probably one of the more important joints up there, you know, and where it actually integrates with that thoracic spine. Um, and it has, like you said, 17 uh, attachments or muscular attachments. Um, that to me speaks volumes about why you should be looking there. Um, cause if there's a dysfunction in the thoracic spine, it's no doubt going to translate into the shoulder. It's just going to happen. Yeah. So. yeah I, I, that's a great response. I, the analogy I always give, I, I'll tell a patient, you know, look out the window and pretend there's a stream, right? And the streams is it's beautiful flowing. Life is good. And the next time you come back, you look at that stream and the, and the currents slowed, uh, but you don't see something, you don't see something there, right? Cause that would be that localized soft tissue injury. If you don't see something there, it's stopping the, the flow. Well, what are you going to do? You're going to keep walking upstream. Um, and you may need to go all the way up and, and using that same sort of idea with the shoulder. Well, yeah, we know shoulders ball socket. We've got a capsule, glenohumeral humeral capsule stabilizing the shoulder statically. Well, the rotator cuff is, is dynamically stabilizing it. It's talked about the rotator cuff has attachments and influence of the scapula as long as, as 13 other muscles and that those attachments go right into the thoracic spine on some of them. And that's that yep. same idea of just slowly working all the way um, 
you know, and right. It's, it's easier to start upstream and then kind of work downstream than start upstream and then fight upstream. That's. Yeah. And I think the two, I want to add to this, the thoracic spine is so important because, you know, when you assess your patients, have them stand and try to arch back as far as they can in standing and look at the extension, have them go forward and flexion, have them stand and side bend each way because we know, and then have them rotate because we know that scapular thoracic motion in theory, if you have great thoracic spine motion, in theory, the, the scapula should move in, in an ideal way and that should help the humeral. So if we get right rotation of the scapula, we know we're going to get good adduction to the spine of the right shoulder. If we get good right left rotation, we're going to get good abduction from the scapula of the spine. If we get good left side bending, we're going to get good right upward rotation of the scapula. If we get good left side bend, or excuse me, right, right uh, lateral flexion, we're going to get good downward rotation of the scapula. We know good extension is going to give us tilting of the scapula. Flexion is going to give us anterior tilting. Sorry, I had to go on a little tangent there, but just so to paint Love the it. picture. Yeah, no, I, I think no. the other thing is, I mean, just look at the literature. The literature will say take a shoulder impingement and something such as uh, uh, thoracic manipulation uh, can help reduce symptoms. So do you do you do manipulations or anything like that, Chad? Yeah, I do uh, thoracic and cervical. Yeah, okay, those yeah. tend to be, I, I have done lumbar before, but I don't really get much out of that. It's more thoracic and cervical, I get, especially thoracic is uh that's something that i would hit in the manual portion before i actually start bringing through the functional movement gives me that little bit of window to get a little bit more out of them you know and like you were saying steve there's there's definitely some nervous system response that happens there you know maybe it's not that i just you know popped your your you know spine back in in place right quote unquote right yeah. but it's, you know we, we definitely had some sort of nervous system cue there that you know allowed our body to be like all right this is okay you know so um I think that's, that's a great point. Yeah. Yeah. I think the manipulations, I agree with you. They're great to do. And for the OTs out there that say you can't manipulate, you can manipulate. You just have to obviously be trained in it. We can't cause harm to our patients and you need to, uh, you need to document it as a grade five mobilization. Grade five. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you need we to do the early. same thing. We gotta, we gotta call it a grade five as well. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I know for the OTs, so you have to do that. It's no different. Yep. Yep. Um, Chad, if there was somebody just scrolling through this episode and was like, man, they're losing me. I'm just going to go to the takeaways. What would be your takeaways from today's episode for someone who's in a clinic evaluating, looking at conservative shoulders? Yeah, I would say the takeaway would be to not just go right ahead and blame the shoulder. You know, I would say do some research, do, do, do a global movement screen and see what else could be causing that pain because, you know, what do they say? Those, those who treat the site of pain are lost, right? Like you're completely lost if you're going right after shoulder pain. So I think you need to find the root cause of the problem. And I think right now, a big rock for you to hit would be thoracic spine, that scapulothoracic joint. And uh, if you can determine if there's an, um, a dysfunction in those two areas, I guarantee most of your, your shoulders will, will get better for sure. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Um, are you ready to sit in the hot seat and finish out with three uh, questions we do for our guests? Sure. Let's do it. All right. All right. You're on the hot seat. Here we go. So first question, give you a category. We're going to go start, cut, and bench. I'm going to give you three athletes, okay? So okay. since you're from Massachusetts, I thought this would be fun. <laughs> start, cut, bench. Tom Brady, Aaron Rodgers, Peyton Manning. Start, cut, or bench? Well, of course, I'm going to start Tom Brady. Okay. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. Hey, yeah. Look at the guy once ranked. You can't yes. and then I guess once, once a New England Patriot, always a New England Patriot, even okay. if he's on the Bucks. Okay. <laughs> and then, and then who, who are we cutting and who are we benching? All right. Who were the other two options? It was Aaron Rodgers and who? Peyton Manning. Oh, Peyton, oh, Peyton Manning. <laughs> All three of these guys in their prime. All three of these guys in their prime. Oh, in their prime. All yeah. right. I'll, We're still um, starting Tom Brady, obviously. I'm still starting Tom Brady. Okay. Um, we can cut Peyton and we can bench Aaron. Okay. All right. Some yeah. Packer fans up here in Wisconsin. I can't, I can't cut, I can't cut you, Aaron. Save the even little grace there, Chad. Yeah. 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 A lot of and, Packer listeners probably. To say we, we won't post your address on here, okay? <laughs> oh, you'd rather me cut Aaron Rodgers? 
No, 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 no. I think Stardom. Oh, yeah. I agree with the Brady. Yeah. Like certain Brady. It's hard to argue a seven championships, you know? Yeah, I know. <laughs> okay. So if you could replace any character in a movie, who would it be? So I'm talking you oh. could be Batman. You could be Iron Man. You could be uh, Robert De Niro in one of his movies. Is there any character in any movie you could be? Oh, man. That's a good question. Hmm. You know, I think I'd have to say Thor in Avengers. That guy's the freaking man. Dude, uh, yeah. Hey, that's sweet. And then also you get that contract, you know. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. I don't exactly. know what that guy's no Chris Hem Chris Hemsworth. Yeah, that's his name. Hemsworth. I'll take so you yeah. Okay. You you would you would be Thor in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I like that. Totally. Did you have, did you have a third one, Ryan? Or did I you don't know. Okay, no, okay, gotcha. No. All right. So I know you're a big uh Work, you love working out. You enjoy your food. I'm just wondering if Chad is short on time and he's got to resort to going and getting something fast casual or fast food, what is your go-to meal? Oh, so my go-to meal is, and this is like my kryptonite, is pizza. So I could eat pizza like all day if I had if I had to. You know, but uh, I don't I don't crave like sweets. I don't crave any of that stuff. So uh, like fast food, though. Yeah, that's uh, what I, want I would have to say. Food. I would have to say Wendy's. I I'm a big Wendy's guy when it comes to fast food. I love me some Wendy's. Dude, Wendy's are sweet. What are you getting from Wendy's? <laughs> oh, dude, I would I would crush like two or three junior bacon cheeseburgers, man. And I love those fries. I would hit those fries all day. Yep. Do you get the frosty with the fries? No, I don't get the frosty, but okay. the frosty. Oh, dude. <laughs> oh man, that's awesome. Cool. cool. All right, brother. Well, well, thank you for your time and uh, we appreciate having you on the show. Yeah, I love that. Thank you, Steve and Ryan for having me on. I appreciate it, man. It was a blast. Yep, appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you for joining us in the rack this week. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on any future episodes. You can also find us online at proformptma.com or on social media at proformptma. And remember, if you train inside the rack, you better be thinking outside the rack.